Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gifts of Freedom. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the African-American Freedom Journal journey and how it included the genealogy of revolution that resulted in the scholarly preparation of an ethnic identity as colored Americans of the typical branch of the Ethiopian race. My guest will be joining me here shortly. I would like to remind you that we're coming to you over www blacktalkradio.com. Also, this show and all shows of the Gist of Freedom are archived via iTunes or free at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. I would also encourage you to get a Facebook account and look up the Gist of Freedom and um, we'll start now with the program. My guest joining me tonight is Harry Bradshaw Matthews, who's an associate dean and director at the U.S. Pluralism Center, and is also founder and president of Hollywood College in New York State. Good evening, Mr. Matthews. Uh, good evening, um, Preston. How are you this evening? I'm fine. Did I leave anything out in the introduction there? <laughs> uh, it was pretty accurate. Uh, uh, I was, I'm the founding president of the United States Cultural Institute at Harvard College. Okay. And that has something to do with the Harriet Tubman Mentoring Project? Yes, sir. Uh, the USCT Institute um, for Local History and Family Research uh, was started in 1978. Uh, today it is a recognized facility of the um, National Underground Railroad Network to Freedom. Uh, the Harriet Tubman Mentoring Project is a student chapter of the USCT Institute. Okay, great. Well, getting into this discussion of the development of the African slave trade, could you start out by telling us um, when was Africa invaded? or defeated and colonized, and uh, what African well, nations uh, were well, the first? Well, um, if, if we go back to the um, trans-Sahara um, um, trade uh, that included a lot of those um, um, Arabs and so on, um, there was trading going on then. Um, during that time period, the trading that was taking place was primarily based upon uh, religion. And so they would enslave what they referred to as the heathens and so on. But when you get to Europe, uh, the first uh, European country that became engaged in the slave trade was um, Portugal. 
and that um, first started out around um, around 1440, 41, around in in that range, and then from there it began to um, spread, and so by um, the 1600s. you had numerous European countries that was involved um, in in the process of the slave trade. Well, after Portugal, who was the next European country? Well, you had you had Portugal, uh, you had um, you had the Dutch, you had the French, um, the Spanish was heavily engaged. Uh, England eventually um, came into um, into the arena. But you also had early in the game, you had Sweden and you had Italy and so on. Uh, But after a while, dominance um, of the slave trade began to shift. And so the shifting uh, went in the direction of Spain, and then it would end up um, with the British over time. Now, you mentioned uh, religion being involved uh, early on. Mm -hmm. Um, what was the motive there for religions, and which particular religion was more involved than others? Well, if if you go back to um, Emperor Constantine, Roman Emperor Constantine, and his conversion to Christianity, uh, he then went forward um, into northern Africa um, um, to to spread Roman Catholicism, his concept of Roman Catholicism, and there he he met and um, challenged Eastern Catholicism. So you had two different forms of Christianity that was existing um, at the same time that was in um, conflict with each other. And over time, um, there were some attempts to try to merge the two together, but eventually um, uh, that did not happen. And you had a couple of prominent um, theologians coming out of Alexandria, Egypt, such as Origen and St. Fominius and so on, uh, who refused to... um, adhere to Constantine's demand that they go to Rome and so on. So there was some fighting and conflict taking place. But in the process of that, um, Eastern Catholicism and uh, Roman Catholicism started challenging each other's validity based upon their faith. And there was the belief that Eastern Catholicism included some remnants of the worship of the Egyptian mysteries, particularly pertaining to um, Isis. And so there was the idea that um, those individuals who were um, worshiping deities, i.e. stones, were viewed as um, um, perpetuators of the devil. And as a consequence, this whole emergence began to take place where those who were not adhering to the religious beliefs were put down and perceived as um, different and inept and um, less than those who adhered to the dominant religious views. And this Hmm. just carried itself over, and you end up with this whole dynamic, uh, talking about um, never allowing the devil to conquer the angels of God, and the devil by that time was being viewed as Africans or blacks, and the angels of God were being viewed as um, white women. And uh, images began to appear in terms of paintings and so on to help develop this mythology. And the the religious um, ideas um, helped to justify the economic um, part of this whole um, slavery issue. So speaking of that economic um, advantage, how did they convince, or if they did, Africans, the African leaders, to be involved 
in the slave trade? Did they, did the African people or nations benefit well, uh, in the initial well, invasion and colonization of Africa? Well, if, if we start out, we, we understand that um, slavery did exist in Africa. And the concept of slavery, however, was different. And even among um, the early Arabs who were enslaving uh, some of the Africans, there was intermarriage that was taking place. Uh, many of those in early Africa who became slaves were, were warriors or, or were defeated in battle, and they were in, able to um, intermarry into some of the tribes, and that's documented. And, and so the concept of slavery to some of those Africans was not new. Um, they were not fully uh, aware of what the new form of slavery was going to be as the involvement of Europeans came into play. So that brings in the distinction then between, or the difference between chattel and ditcher and colonial slavery. Could you explain those distinctions to our listeners? Well, chattel property is, is, is basic, just is less than human. Um, in, in, in some um, some of the various European orders, for instance, such as in the French and the Spanish, and even um, the Dutch, uh, the enslaved Africans were viewed as part of the human family. Now, they may have been on the lower um, ring of the ladder, but they were still viewed as human. Uh, when you got more involved um, and more entrenched in the slavery issue with, with the English, uh, the Africans were viewed as less than human. And so that concept of being less than human became part of the justification uh, for enslaving these people. Okay. So uh, let's see, Portugal went in first, followed by the Dutch, the French, the Spanish, and later um, joined Italy. by... Right. Italy was part of it. Um, but the, the, the dominant group, the dominant groups that was involved in the slavery um, uh, issue um, was the Portuguese, um, was the Spanish, the French, the English, and then there was there were um, some others. Uh, for instance, when we think about um, think about where the largest number of enslaved Africans were taken, uh, that was to Brazil, and that was under the um, direction of, the, of Portugal. And then the, the others were spread out in the Caribbean, and, we'll, and then a lesser um, numbers were brought here to the United States, or the colonies we know today as the United States. And um, what year were they brought into the colonies? Brought into the colonies? Well, um, if you look at England entering the slave trade in 1553, roughly, um, you, you're talking about... Um, uh, them bringing their slaves or entering into the slave trade, um, and it lasted for an extended period of time. But what, what's important about England is that in, in, in 1772, the James Somerset case, uh, slavery came to an end in mainland England, but it continued in the um, British uh, West Indies and in the American colonies. And then secondly, slavery came to an end in the British West Indies between 18, 1834, 1838, um, which included a four-year apprenticeship period. But slavery continued in the United States. And you said it was the Somerset case? The James Somerset case. 
James Somerset case, um, 1772, and roughly 20,000 20, Africans were freed in England. Um, they were left on their own. Uh, there were no provisions made available for them and so on. And by that time, um, since England had been involved in the slave period for a long period of time, some of those individuals had actually come to be born in England. And as a consequence, they were indoctrinated in the values of the time period. And so even some of those individuals who um, became um, acculturated, they were um, involved in helping um, the white British um, enslave others in Africa. So give us a, just a few details of, um, and a little uh, bit of a biography of Mr. James Somerset. James Somerset? James Somerset, yeah. uh, James Somerset was, well, he was brought to um, England, um, and he, he was brought by a slave owner, and he, his court case followed that of a couple others that had taken place over time. Um, there was about three major court cases uh, in England leading up to the James Somerset case. Um, Judge Mansfield uh, was the person who was um, in charge of the deliberations, and they were trying as best they could to avoid um, coming with a definitive uh, decision regarding slavery. So they, was, they were skirting around the issue. Um, but very strategically, during the James Somerset case, the Magna Carta was used as one of the justifications why slavery should not exist in mainland England because there were not provisions in the Magna Carta for enslavement, which was rather interesting to me. Um, and so as a consequence of the James Somerset case, that set a lot of things in motion and attention began then uh, to shift. Uh, you, heard, you had persons like... Um, Granville Sharp and uh, Thomas um, uh, Clarkson and and others um, who began to place their emphasis upon limiting uh, the further importation of Africans into the New World. In other words, they wanted to stop any further importing of Africans in, in the New World. And that was somewhere around 1807 or so, 1808. Um, both the United States and England passed bills in that regard. It did not totally eliminate the further importation of Africans in the New World because the pirates uh, and because of the profits that was involved. The profits was, um, was, was, was great. So people were willing to take risks to continue the practice of bringing Africans in all the way up to the Civil War. So how did that... Uh decision impact slavery in America. Is that when uh, Americans, as you say, they use the uh, pirates and whatnot, they start breeding their own slaves? Oh, absolutely. Um, a... What they started to do, uh, if, we, if we go back to, um, let's say, 1834 or so, um, between 1834-1838, when slavery came to an end in the British West Indies, let's say. Mm -hmm. So the next, well, the two uh, next major areas for those who were plantation owners who had slaves was to move their slaves to the United States or either to Cuba, but if you were British, the, you were going to come um, to the United States. And so as a consequence, um, uh, that occurred. And even prior to that, 
um, if you go back to the actual American um, Revolution, uh, those slave owners in the American colonies who remained loyal to England um, was given land, um, and to a large extent in the Caribbean, and Nassau, Bahamas, well, is well known as one of those destinations where plantation owners um, took their slaves from South Carolina and Georgia to Nassau, Bahamas, where there was a population explosion. And then after, um, after um, the Revolutionary War was over, and then after there was the ending of slavery in the British West Indies, some of those same persons who had left the United States end up um, taking their slaves and bringing them back. I see. Now, you mentioned uh, the Revolutionary War. During that period, uh, what percentage of the landowners, plantations, slavers, were absentee uh, landowners? That's a very good question, and that's a question that I can't answer. But I can tell you this. Uh, those who remain loyal uh, to the British was provided with other lands, and certainly those who were um, loyal to the British um, took every available opportunity they had to get out of the American colonies. Uh, so they left. Uh, some of them left their land here. The exact numbers, and I can't, I can't tell you that. Uh, okay. But I know that the lands were left vacant in some cases um, if they weren't able to sell them. Um, in some cases, they tried to, to take their slaves and, and move to um, Cuba because slavery was still uh, functioning. So you had a lot of dynamics, but I cannot tell you the percentage of land that went unused or was um, vacated. Can you tell us which colonies during that period um, were anti-slavery? Well, um, well, we know that we, we start out with the, with the um, 13 colonies, we know that in um, 1777, Vermont um, amended its constitution to end slavery. And then there was, there was movement during the uh, American Revolution uh, in Massachusetts, in Rhode Island, uh, and in New York, and Jersey, and so on, to begin to uh, end slavery, but it, over an extended period of time. So if you consider that, and then if you look at, like, North Carolina and South Carolina and those places, slavery was still there. Um, even if you look at, even if you look at um, New York, New York began to take ste um, steps to, to end slavery in 1799, but in, it, it, it didn't become a wholesale issue until 1827. And then even then there were uh, a little remnants that, that, took, that were still in place in the 18, early 1830s. Um, so most of the country, most of the country was, was engaged in the slavery issue. Most of the states were engaged in the slavery issue. Yes. Now, um, you mentioned this uh, freedom to uh, journey and mm -hmm. uh, the... Um, the concept of color coming out of the Ethiopian race. Talk to us a little bit about that. Okay. Um, the African-American freedom journey, I, I identify as being um, anti-slavery sentiments, and anti-slavery sentiments is essentially expressing that you are against slavery. 
Then you have um, abolitionist actions in which you are actually engaged in some type of process calling for the ending of slavery. It could be lectures. It could be publishing of books, so on and so on. Uh, and then you have the Underground Railroad, which was a system within itself in which individuals were directly involved in helping a slave to escape or a slave, enslaved African to escape. And that included also, in some cases, providing a financial resources for legal purposes. Uh, and then following um, the Underground Railroad, I then include, um, I then in, include um, the United States um, colored troops during the Civil War, in other words, men fighting for their own, and then from there, um, self-help. So those are the dynamics of, of the freedom journey. Now, part of the freedom journey was the development of what I refer to as the genealogy of, of revolution. And essentially what that means is that there were individuals in the early years who were beginning to help develop an African-American infrastructure that would, in fact, um, in fact um, directly attack um, slavery. And so, for example, what I'm talking about is Prince Hall and the Prince Hall Masons, for instance. Now, we know that um, uh, George Washington and most of his officers were Masons, and we know that Prince Hall and a few other brethren um, were made Masons during the Revolutionary War. Well, they eventually ended up um, becoming a very powerful um, force within themselves, and this is occurring now in, in the late um, 1700s, early 1800s. And then um, another um, part of the revolutionary genealogy is the development of the AME Church and the AME Zion Church, um, Richard Allen and, and James Verrett. And that became part of the revolutionary um, genealogy of revolutionary, um, revolution because um, each denomination ended up establishing a, or having a number of different churches, each of which became a sanctuary for runaways and also became the center of, of actions for the black communities in which they um, existed. And I find it very interesting that Richard Allen himself um, became a Prince Hall Mason. And so we start with, we start with those individuals, uh, and then we go and we look at um, other individuals um, uh, like Toussaint L'Ouverture uh, in Haiti, uh, Toussaint L'Ouverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines and uh, Henry Christophe, they were leaders of the Haitian Revolution. And what's important about that is that they helped set the standard for revolt. And what's even more important is that there were um, Africans in America who was in direct contact with those in, in Haiti. And once um, Haiti um, came under the direction of um, Henry Christoph, um, Henry Christoph brought an, an African-American or a colored American um, who's named Prince Saunders to help set up the educational system uh, in Haiti. Now, Prince Saunders was also a Prince Hall Mason. And um, Prince Hall, while he was there, put together a book um, detailing all the various Haitian documents that had been developed in the development of the Haitian society and brought it back to the United States and placed it in the hands of his, of, of his brethren. Um, and the other important thing about the, uh, the reign of Henry Christoph um, was, first of all, Henry Christoph had fought in the American Revolution as a young, young boy. 
but later, when he was in charge, he developed a royal court uh, in Haiti. And Haiti at that time was viewed as one of the wealthiest small um, territories in the world. Uh, and his court was uh, consisted of uh, princesses, um, dukes, earls, um, and so on. And they left detailed accounts of how to set up a structure of that nature. And that came back and was, um, became influential in the, in the genealogy revolution in the United States because Haiti became a central cry for revolt. And that became very evident um, with Denmark Vesey in, in South Carolina when he planned his revolt. And then from Denmark um, Vesey, um, you know, his revolt was considered, or his planning of the revolt was considered one of the most ingenious undertakings that had um, taken place but there was someone that they tried to recruit, a slave, who went back and told the slave owner, and, and they squashed it. But before um, Demarvisi's time was over, um, uh, you, you then had David Walker, who was tutored by um, Demarvisi. So Demarvisi is influenced by Tucson. Then David Walker is, is influenced by um, Demarvisi, and David Walker, as you know, came up with his Walker's Appeal, in which he um, looked at all the major documents um, dealing with the founding of the United States and took them and ripped them apart and showed uh, the hypocrisy of what had been written as it pertained to his own people, African Americans, and he called for immediate revolt. And unfortunately, we know that he was found dead at his doorstep not too long after, but his book was already circulating even in the South. And then his protege, um, Mariah Stewart, stepped forward, which was um, quite unusual for a woman to speak in public. She became the first woman who was speaking in political gatherings um, during her time. And this is oh, in, uh, uh, oh, Mariah Stewart. And Mariah Stewart was so powerful uh, and that an influential um, she was challenging uh, men of Africa as having no backbone to stand up and defend themselves and fight for themselves rather than waiting for others to tell them what they can and cannot do. And she infuriated a lot of, <laughs> a lot of black men who very shortly, in the beginning of the 1830s, started holding colored men's conventions in which they began to advocate for themselves. Uh, the other interesting thing about Mariah Stewart was that she was brought into the um, in the circle of the Prince Hall Masons, she may very well have been the first Eastern star of the Prince Hall Masons. Uh, and so Mariah Stewart and David Walker, in some regards, are referred to as the mother and father of, of black America. Okay. Uh, you've covered a lot of ground there. I want to go back <laughs> to uh, the Revolutionary War. Okay. Um, who, were, um, who were the leaders? You mentioned Henry Christoph fought in the Revolutionary War. You know, the Christmas addict uh, was a first uh, casualty of that mm -hmm. war. To what extent did um, Christmas addict have leadership in the anti-slavery abolitionist movement at that time? And who were some of the other leaders during that Revolutionary War, black leaders? Well, um, during that, you're, you're talking about, uh, during the American Revolution, you're talking primarily about um, black men being promised freedom if they were enslaved. And there were some who were enslaved who fought. And then there were some others who were free who thought that they could gain improved uh, manhood. Um, 
we, um, Peter Salem, um, we know some of those basic names. Uh, I think the most important thing is, is that there were about 5,000 black men who fought um, on the side of, of the colonies, um, and most of whom was promised something, uh, some sort of benefit, but many of them never received that, that benefit. Um, the most important um, person that I um, think about is Prince Hall. Uh, because Prince Hall ended up establishing a major organization for many of the black men who fought in on the side of the colonists um, they were fighting for their own individual um, gratification or benefit um, so that's the way I look at that one uh, on the flip side you had well over 30,000 black men who fought with um, the British uh, because the British um, offered them uh, their freedom. Lord Dunmore uh, started it off, and they were talking about Lord Dunmore's Ethiopian Brigade. And those men became very engaged. And um, true to form, uh, when the British began to exit from the colonies, there was agreement that they could take with them uh, those Africans or um, Africans in America who had supported the British. And indeed, they did take a large number um, from a number of the larger um, cities at that time. And were there so, um, a, lo a large number of those 30,000 um, blacks who fought for the British? Did yeah, and their families. Family. Uh, that was the first uh, major mass exodus from slavery in the United States. It was during the Revolutionary War when those who sided with the British um, left or was taken with the British. And did a number of those go to Canada? Canada, yes. Canada, we know about Sierra Leone, um, and some was taken to the Caribbean. Um, so they were dispersed in several uh, uh, different locations, so those connections are real with Canada for sure. Uh, and, you know, when I hear people talk, um, make distinctions between the Caribbean and um and uh, United States are blacks in the Caribbean, blacks in the United States. You know, I kind of cringe because those people, they, they knew that they were cousins. They know that they were coming out of the same struggle. And so, uh, for instance, when those in, um, had gained their freedom in the British West Indies, there were emancipation days that were celebrated here in the United States because their brethren in the Caribbean uh, had been freed. And in a similar vein, when emancipation and such was issued here in the United States, there were celebrations in the Caribbean. And I have documents of, um, of meetings that took place, for instance, in, in Nassau with, with brethren from New York and South Carolina at emancipation uh, events. So there was definitely interaction that was taking place. And, and Haiti, Haiti had extended its arms to black Americans to come there. Um, but many of the leaders just felt that the climate was just too too much, and so they chose um, to remain in in this land and keep this land as as their future battleground. I want to remind our listeners that they're listening to the Gist of Freedom. I'm your host, Preston Washington. My guest is Harry Bradshaw Matthews, historian, genealogy genealogist, and we're talking about the development of the slave trade. Um, in Africa, 
coming to the U.S. and some differences there. Um, you also mentioned, uh, Harry, about the uh, the abolitionists. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit more about the abolitionists. Who were some of the other abolitionists here in America? What were the name of some of their institutions? And also, let our listeners know what uh, involvement that international abolitionists, how they helped to end slavery, such as uh, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, Thomas Clarkson, um, Granville Sharp, they were all instrumental. Um, Charles Fox, there was a bunch of them that was in, in England, um, for sure. And they were interacting with the abolitionists here in the United States, both black and white. Uh, the United States had both. Um, before I, I name some of the leading abolitionists here, the, I think one of the first things I need to point out is that abolitionists um, were united in terms of ending slavery, but most of the white abolitionists did not believe in equal rights between black and white. So that distinction has to be made right up front. And that's important because the first thing we do, we start with the founding of the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1833, which brings together regional groups into a, a major body. And so you have persons like William, um, William Lord Garrison in Massachusetts, but you've got Garrett Smith in New York. He's a white abolitionist who held different views in terms of how to bring about the ending of slavery, but they were all fighting to end slavery. But then um, among the black abolitionists, you had individuals like um, Henry Howland Gannett, who was one of the major leaders uh, uh, in the movement, and you had Martin Delaney, uh, who was a major leader, and um, you had James Pendleton. And James Pendleton was the, was the author um, uh, of the book about the origin and history of the colored people that... Um, deals with this issue of Ham and the Ethiopians. And then you had Alexander Crumel. Um, uh, you had Daniel Alexander Payne, who I might have mentioned a little earlier, but he was one of the geniuses behind the movement. Um, William Wells Brown. And, there was, and there's, there's others, others um, on a regional base. But these were the individuals who were um, banding together to develop uh, a new ethnic identity in America. By 1840, 70% of those of African descent in the United States had been born in the United States. They were not born in Africa. And as a consequence, in my mind, that was 70%, uh, uh, those 70% were enslaved Americans. They were not enslaved Africans. They were enslaved Americans. Because yes, these, these people did not, they didn't even know uh, much about Africa. They knew about the land in which they were born. And so when you had individuals um, like Daniel Alexander Payne and uh, Henry Howland Goodnett and Martin Delaney um, forming uh, African Civilization Association or, or society and asking for funds to help with education, you had a number of blacks within the society who were free who would not contribute because they thought the money was going to be used for colonization purposes back to Africa. So you had those dynamics that was going on. Um, but at any rate, um, by 1840, by 1840, there was a breakup in the American Anti-Slavery Society, and that breakup occurred because there was a, a woman, a white 
female abolitionist, Abby Kelly, who was appointed to the business committee, and you had a, a large segment of the American Anti-Slavery Society who was against women having full participation in their organization. And so the movement split into four major um, parts. There was a women's um, sector that developed. There were African-American sector. There was the um, William Lloyd Garrison um, faction, and there was Garrett Smith faction. And each one of them carried their own banners. And, Excuse me, um, last faction? Excuse me? What was the last faction? You mentioned women's, African-American. Um, Garrett Smith. Garrett um, Smith. Garrett Smith was in upstate New York. He was one of the wealthiest abolitionists. He bankrolled everybody, it seemed. Um, but his position, um, Garrett Smith's position was uh, abolitionists should use the political process to push for an ending of slavery. William Lloyd Garrison was opposed to that. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison was opposed to any of his members interacting with any religious body that had not taken out a strong position against slavery. Um, uh, Garrett Smith was more moderate in that regard. Um, so they had these type of um, uh, differences among themselves. And then African Americans had finally um, come to the position that they would, um, from that point forward, define for themselves what it was that they themselves would advocate, they would welcome help, but they would decide for themselves moving forward. So you had these dynamics. And then with the women, the women were um, beginning to become a force within themselves, um, which um, resulted in uh, the suffrage movement coming directly out of the abolitionist movement, directly out of it. And so there was a lot of movement that was taking place in the 1840s. Uh, and then, you know, as we begin to... Um, approached the Fugitive Act, um, Slave Act in 1850. There was a lot of um, chaotic reactions to that. There was some fleeing to Canada, which, by the way, um, during the 1830s, there was a movement about, among the black abolitionists to stop migration to Canada, and they did for a while. Um, but once the 1850s Slave Fugitive Act came out, um, there was fear, and people Could started you, uh, to... Can I interrupt here? Um, Harry, um, could you explain to our listeners uh, what the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law was and how it differed from the first uh, Fugitive Slave Law that was passed, I think, in 1792? Okay. Now, the second one one required that uh, individuals, uh, required individuals to assist slave owners with the recapture of their slaves. They were mandated by law. Now, this brings up an interesting point, that when we talk about slavery in the United States, slavery was institutionalized in the United States. It was was supported by the executive branch. It was supported by the judicial branch. It was supported by the legislative branch. It was part of the American fabric. And so you had these laws, and that was one of the laws. So essentially what, what happened or could have easily happened was a slave owner could have walked up to a black person and claimed that person as having been his slave. And those law-abiding um, law citizens and, and sheriffs or whatever were obligated by law to assist that person with capturing it. And then it would go through this dynamic, and as you know, most of the black persons could not, um, could not defend themselves. Illegally, and mm-hmm. so that, that created a it created a, a crazy dynamic 
And so we haven't talked about Harriet Tubman and so on, but Harriet Tubman and others, they began to um, um, go to Canada um, to avoid what was taking place. It was a terrible thing. And then it led, uh, we come to um, the Dress Scott decision in 1857, where essentially uh, the result was a slave is a slave is a slave. But um, the Supreme Court Justice Taney took um, the court ruling a step further when he said that there is not a single virtue possessed by a black man that is worthy of respect by a white man. And that's the Supreme Court Justice of yes, the United sir. States. And so it was quite clear that um, there was a major division within the society, and um, I give credit uh, I give credit to my people for having the ability to develop an infrastructure to fight against some of that. And so by the time the slavery came to an end, which we can talk about later, uh, there was already a, a process in place for some of the, um, for the freedmen uh, to be able to um, help provide for themselves. There was a pathway, in other words, process. Yeah, you mentioned um, at 18, in connection with the 1850 um, anti-slave act. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to remind our listeners that coming to your city, if not already there, is a major motion picture, 12 Years a Slave. Oh, yes. Yeah. story of Solomon Northup, who was kidnapped out of New York State, taken yeah. into Louisiana, held in slavery for 12 years, uh, was rescued uh, due to the efforts of his wife, and lived to write about it. Yeah. And... Uh, it's just one story that we had, probably uh, thousands of stories of African Americans who were kidnapped in the North and sold in slavery uh, in the South. Oh, absolutely. He was uh, he was Saratoga Springs, and he was lured. He he befriended a few people at, at the hotel he was working at, and um, they did they did that harm. They convinced him to go with them in D.C. Once they got down to D.C., they stopped putting things in motion for him to be um, sold. And to the benefit of abolitionists in upstate New York, they fought long and hard along with um, to get him back for him to eventually gain his freedom. So that's one of, that's one of the good stories um, that comes out of a bad situation. Um, but we know, even here, I'm located in Oneonta, New York, and we have a case which um, I recently documented, a mother and her half-sister and the mother's um, six children escaping from Virginia to Oneonta, New York, an underground railroad. And that was in 1860. So leading up to the Civil War, the um, uh, escapes were still taking place. Mm-hmm. Um. You were mentioning uh, the revolution that was going on in Haiti, which was an armed revolution, mm -hmm. the only successful armed revolution um, by blacks against slavery, mm -hmm. and some connection they might have had with abolitionists here in America. What uh, was the distinction? Why didn't the Denmark Vesey type revolution or uprising, why didn't that take root? What happened here in the Americas? Yeah, that's that's a very good story. Um, the first thing to point out is that in the West Indies generally, uh, there were very few white women. 
um, which meant that there was a tendency uh, for some slave owners to um, have larger estates in their native lands. And so a number of the Africans who were in Caribbean territories were able to maintain uh, connection to their African to their African roots. Uh, the, one of the major differences, and so, you know, they were, they were very fortunate to be in much larger numbers. There's very few areas in the Caribbean in which there was a larger white population than there was black. There was, uh, Bermuda is one of those rare exceptions. Um, but in mainland United States, the weather was more welcoming, and there was um, much... There were a lot more white people in mainland America uh, than there were in, in the Caribbean. So they were able to set up a much stricter code of conduct. Like, for instance, in the, in the Caribbean, we know because there were so few um, uh, white women, there, there was a tendency, it was called washing a black more white, when a, a slave owner uh, would have sex relationships with an African woman if a daughter was born, he would then have sexual relationships with the daughter. And, yeah. then, and then the daughter, if the daughter um, ended up having a daughter, he would have a sexual relationship with the granddaughter um, to help whiten up a segment of the population. Um, here in mainland America, that was not necessary. Uh, segregation uh, uh, took place, um, but it wasn't quite the same. It wasn't quite the same at all. And so as a consequence, many of the Africans in mainland America was on a much harsher treatment. There, was, there were fewer uh, opportunities uh, for them to find um, outlets um, to gain their freedom. We know, for instance, we do know, for instance, however, that it, they were, um, there were some slave owners who, who had mixed children who sent their children off to other places to be educated, but that was not the general rule. Most of those children of, of mixed race that was born was born into slavery. Uh, and so we know that there were children coming out of slavery who physically appeared to be white um, because they were the children of black women. And the status of a child in the United States was based upon the status of the mother. Of the mother yeah. So that's one of the reasons why more stringent rules came along um, as this process uh, continued because in the earlier years, um, you had indentured servants, uh, many of whom were white, and they were under the same conditions as enslaved Africans, living in the same quarters, and as a consequence, sexual relationships were taking place and children were being born. But those children born to white mothers, primarily Irish mothers, were free, were considered free because their mothers were free. So mm -hmm. more stringent rules were put in place to, to stop that. That's regulation laws and so on, because the slave owners was losing property in their mind. And um, let's see, we're um, fast approaching uh, quitting time here. Before <laughs> we do, could you um, weave in a little bit more information about this ethnic identity uh, yes. coming out of the Ethiopian race? Yes. How that you know weaves well, in. Uh, Yes, I, I, I definitely can. Um, you had a, a group of young scholars that emerged, and I mentioned a few of them already who were classically trained, 
And what they did was go back and look at um, what documents and so on that slave owners was using to justify slavery. And it turns out that many of the justifications for slavery was based upon biblical verses. And those biblical verses go back to Noah uh, and the sons of Noah. And Noah's three sons, um, Shem, Japheth, and Ham, uh, became prominent and were viewed as the individuals from whom the rest of the world um, emerged, populations emerged. So as a consequence, um, our black scholars knew that Ham was the beginning of their genealogical journey, and they connected with with Cush, uh, who represents Ethiopia, and Mizram, who represents uh, Egypt. And so they take those dynamics, and then they go back and look at different early documents uh, pertaining to Ethiopia. And one of the primary documents that they found was the map of the ancients. And the map of the ancients showed that the areas from which enslaved Africans were brought to the Americas, those areas was often referred to as Ethiopia interior. Land areas around West Africa were referred to um, Ethiopia um, interior and, and so on. So the Ethiopia concept became real. And so our founding fathers, in terms of the development of the ethnic identity, um, they placed uh, their future upon the legacy of Ethiopia and, and Egypt because they also found that there were connections of Ethiopia and Egypt that was in ancient Scotland. And so they found all these dynamics, and they began to define themselves um, as colored Americans of the typical branch of the Ethiopian race. And one of the major players in the development of these concepts was Daniel Alexander Payne, who became one of the leading bishops of the AME Church. Payne, as a scholar, found Origen, Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, uh, who was a prominent theologian in Alexandria, Egypt, who developed a theology, an African theology, based upon the teachings of Ethiopia in the Bible. And when Payne learned that, Payne assumed the pen name of Origen. And it became clear to me when he did that that he was planning to infiltrate, infiltrate the AME church and begin to teach uh, the, the reverends um, to become thinkers of the mind rather than of the heart. And he began to infiltrate, and he did a fantastic job. And so this concept emerged. And so as we, as we leave the 1840s into the 1850s and so on, the leading scholars were always referring to um, and, and embracing um, themselves as a descendants of Ham and of Cush specifically. So they would talk in terms of Africa in a general sense as the motherland, but Ethiopia became central to that. And it remained in effect um, from the 1800s coming into the 1900s, particularly during the late 1890s and 1900s, there was a, uh, there was a flood of new books, history books, written by our people for our people. And they always referred to uh, the story of Ham and Cush and their association with Ethiopia. 
and I have many of those books, um, first editions, uh, in my collection. And even after that, uh, even into the 1930s, there were still books being written about um, Ethiopia, the missing link in the African-American identity or in the black identity and so on. Um, I even found myself doing that before I learned about all these other individuals. Um, when in um, 1990, I put out my first law writing A Legacy of Ethiopia, the African-American Identity. I had no idea that these other individuals had preceded me in that way, but I remember the story that um, a teacher, a professor had once told me, Dr. Ina Campbell from the University of West Indies, um, uh, an anthropologist, and she had told me that I did not have one original thought. Whatever I was thinking, there were others who had already thought of it. She said, she told me, find them and you will find yourself. And she was absolutely correct. Um, because as time progressed and as I continued my research uh, and so on, I started finding these other scholars who had embraced the concept of Ethiopia um, as a typical branch of the Ethiopian race. Um, and I'm very um, pleased with that. Is that your uh, only book? Do you have other titles that you've written? I have other titles. I have uh, the Matthews um, um, Guide in African American Genealogical Research, How to Trace Your uh, Family History. That is considered or has been quoted by some authors as one of the 24 most important case studies ever written in family history. Uh, and then I have the story of um, um, the family history of Anthony Johnson, uh, one of the first um, Africans in, in uh, Jamestown, Virginia, in 1690. I've traced his lineage from 1692 to today through the lineage of his granddaughter, who married a Native American in 1682, John Puckham, and talking about um, a distortion of history, um, in the 1800s, a religious historian came and found out about the marriage, and he was so offended that such an important act could have taken place in the 1600s, he changed Joan Johnson Negro to Jane Johnson White Maiden. And for a long period of time, we had we as black people in America had no idea that we had a lineage that extended um, even earlier than the Mayflower. Mm. And so, um, and I have I have other books. I uh, the book that's probably most available to people is African American um, Freedom Journey uh, in New York and related sites, 1823 to 1870. Uh, it, it, it has New York in, in the title, but it covers a, a wide span. And it has a number of case studies um, that I've conducted, uh, um, placing individuals in historical context, because that's what I do. Um, I, I don't just trace lineages. I place them within historical context, and that's based upon the research I had done for my own family uh, that taught me a number of lessons. Uh, and why that was so necessary to do. That's My family research led me to all these other studies that I ended up doing. I know how that goes. Um, <laughs> what books of yours are available directly from you, and how would people get a hold of you if they want copies? Well, most of my writings are, are print-on-demand. I make them available print-on-demand. Um, they can contact me. Um, by email, the preferred method is by email, um, which is Matthews, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S-H for Harry, at 
Hartwick, H-A-R-T-W-I-C-K dot E-D-U. That's the best way of reaching me. And so if you're looking for materials dealing with um, Jamestown, Virginia, looking for um, the Ethiopian um, booklet that I've, I did, and I've done a, a, a few other booklets um, that people use widely. Um, I have a book on uh, Wednesday Came, the Families of United States Cultures in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which, which um, traces from oh, the early 1700s through um, uh, must be about through the Civil War period, and it places those families in the historical context of the time period, which means they use their military records and other historical information to write a story. Uh, and that book is has been quoted as the most authentic writing about African Americans in, in Gettysburg. Um, so I've been very fortunate. Most of my writings um, have been referenced by other scholars and so on. It's just that I've never had the interest in going out and looking for publishers to publish my works. I, I don't know why, but I just haven't. So do you have a Facebook page? Uh, no, but there's a lot of stuff on the web. Uh, anyone who's looking um, uh, to see some of the stuff that I've done and some of the things I'm involved with, uh, just Google Harry Bradshaw Matthews. If you Google Harry Matthews, you won't find me. <laughs> Harry Bradshaw Matthews. Harry Bradshaw Matthew. Matthews. Mm-hmm. Um, just before we get out of here, I'm kind of curious. You were mentioning uh, the biblical connection to Ethiopia and being mm-hmm. descendants of Ham and Cush. And in mm-hmm. modern times, Haile Selassie yes. uh, claimed direct lineage, the 111th direct descendant of King Solomon. Yes, that's um, absolutely right. And, um, is that, a minute, is that for real? Yes, it's for real. <laughs> As far as I'm concerned, it's for real. And Holly Selassie, when Holly Selassie rose, Holly Selassie told the world that his country is not Abyssinia. His country is Ethiopia. And because, you know, the Italians played the Abyssinian uh, thing. And when, um, and this is an interesting side note, when, when um, Ethiopia was attacked by uh, Mussolini, uh, you had African Americans in the thousands who went to fight for Ethiopia. And in I fact, I have, records, I have records of some of the um, earliest black pilots, who, and one was a woman, <laughs> uh, who went to fight for Ethiopia. And there were so many black Americans who, who stood up for Ethiopia. The United States passed a law forbidding Americans from fighting in foreign conflicts. I do recall hearing something about that, and there was a large, significant number of blacks out of New York City Yes, that's right. They were right. signing up to fight for, uh, for Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Absolutely right. So, so there's a there's a lot of um, historical connections that continue. Um, and I have I was at one conference and someone was saying to me, "Well, if 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 these people consider themselves the typical branch of Ethiopians, why didn't they call themselves Ethiopians?" I said, "They don't have to call themselves Ethiopians. They're a typical branch of the Ethiopian race." But they have a specific identity as colored Americans or black Americans or so on, and mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense. But they're saying that the legacy, the, uh, the biblical and uh, genealogical legacy, traces back to Ethiopia and in, in a more greater sense to, to Ham. Um, Are and, there any events coming up uh, around this subject that our listeners might be interested in? Or are you doing any presentations? 
Um, um, your coming people, up, yes, coming up, if, if anyone is in the upstate New York area, we're having our Harriet Tubman Buffalo Soldier mini-conference next weekend in which we engage the members of the Harriet Tubman um, Project with some of our leading um, um, practitioners, genealogical and historical um, practitioners, for uh, intense engagement with each other. And all they would have to do is contact me and let me know. Other than that, the following week, um, during November, I think it's the 8th and 9th, uh, there's the Harriet Tubman Symposium, uh, which is being held at uh, Cayuga Community College, which is in Auburn, New York, in which some of the leading um, Tubman scholars will be there. Um, I will be there to give a presentation, too. And in, as part of mine, I will be placing Harriet Tubman within the historical context of the freedom journey um, to let people know that she, there was a specific place for her within that freedom journey. She was not just standing alone. She was benefiting from things that had been placed in, in motion before she escaped and how she contributed to the further development of the African-American freedom journey just um, by um, donating her home uh, for the care of the elderly and infirm, uh, which was a major, uh, major step. So she, she, she's definitely a warrior queen. And so I will be talking about that and exposing some of the other things that we talked about tonight. Wow, I wish I could be there. Um, we're out of time. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Be, it's it's going to be some of the some of the big guns that are going to be there, and I'm I'm getting excited about just just thinking about it. So there are individuals who are going to be available to be in upstate New York, um, not this weekend, but the following weekend, Auburn, New York, could be the place you want to be. Will you be uh, filming that and maybe put it out on uh, YouTube? Well, the community yes, the community college may be doing it. Uh, they have the rights. Um, they're hosting it and sponsoring it. Um, so I wouldn't be a bit surprised if some filming takes place. And what's the name of that community college? Uh, Cayuga, C-A-Y-U-G-A, I believe it is. It's in Auburn, New York. Auburn, New York. Yeah. Okay, my guess. To... Go ahead, Harry. One... I was just saying, that if, you, if you go to and Google Auburn, New York, educational institution, it'll pop right up. Okay, great. Uh, we're out of time by the clock on the wall. My guest has been Harry Bradshaw Matthews. And, Mr. Uh, Matthews, I really, really want to thank you. This has been very, very instructive, opened up uh, a lot of new avenues that I'm sure our listeners uh, were unaware of. And uh, our producer, Leslie Gist, I'll have to talk to her to see if we can get you back on, maybe after that presentation uh, mm -hmm. that you're talking about coming up. And I want people to know, your friends and mine, that this uh, show will be available on iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Matthews. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Great. All right. Uh, good night, everyone. We're done. Good night.